You can have a seat. Well, my name is Josh. I don't think I introduced myself last time, but it's good to be with you. Let me uh, pray for our time together, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive in. Father, I praise you for this glorious passage of your tender fatherly love. I thank you for what you show us of your character, both in your tenderness and in your power, I pray. Uh, in your mercy, by the power of your spirit, you would uh, bring us in to the sweetness of meeting you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, right after high school, I graduated on a Sunday, and then Monday morning, I was driving to downtown of the city I lived in, in Columbus, to be a debt collector. I don't, in hindsight, I don't really know how I got this job, uh, but I desperately needed money to pay for college in the fall, and they called me, and uh, I didn't know what was going to happen. So I show up, and they tell me that I did, in fact, sign up to be a debt collector, and this was one of those uh, cubicle calling center kind of gigs where this company would buy debts from other companies, and then we'd call and try to get them to pay. For 18-year-old Josh, this was quite an eye-opening experience because I didn't really have credit at this time. I didn't have anything to my name, but I was calling grown people and trying to advise them about their credit status and stuff. And there's about there's a there's a point about halfway through the summer when I realized uh, something very scary. I was in the car with my dad and my uncle, and we were debating some something. I don't know. It wasn't anything substantial, and I started to get really like feisty, really angry towards my uncle. And I realized that after hour after hour of talking to people, is a nice way to put it, on the phone about the money that they owed, is that I had kind of calcified into this posture where I always thought I was right. <laughs> that might have been there before the debt collecting gig, but I saw it definitely more acutely because I had the, their, credit, their, you know, their social security number, their credit score, the money that they owed, and of course they didn't want to pay it. And I knew that I was right and that they had to pay. And I saw this seeping into my heart. And just, we were talking about baseball or something with my uncle. And I was getting so mad at him. And I'm like, oh, no. I have kind of absorbed my work environment. And I could see how this would have detrimental effects on the rest of my life. Uh, it's not fun to know anyone who thinks they're right all the time. And I tell that story because it was, a, it, was a really shocking, it was a really shocking moment to see how just what I did for money Monday through Friday was starting to spill over into, into my heart. It was like a reaction, an instinct in my heart. And I, I share that story because, uh, to draw an analogy for what we're going to talk about today, which is self-sufficiency. My main idea for us today is that self-sufficiency is a plague in our culture. And I believe it's directly contrary to how God calls us to live as humans. Just like I had kind of caught the plague of always being right in this terrible job that I was banished to for a few months, I believe just living in our culture, just being a person in our time and place infects our hearts to be, to, to, to be infected with self-sufficiency. And I believe that's directly contrary to what Jesus teaches. And we look at the way of Jesus and how he calls us to live he gives us this beautiful, tender passage of the Father meeting our needs, of giving us good gifts to those who ask. And as, as I prayed over this passage and looked, looked at my own heart, God help me, I feel like the biggest holdup we have as a church family is, is this self-sufficiency that we just kind of have been infected with from our culture. 
But what holds us back is not God's goodness to us or his ability to take care of us or to show us his love as our father, but it's our resistance to need him. It's our addiction or our infection of self-sufficiency. When Jesus shows us how to live, he came and was the perfect human. He lived the human life perfectly. He showed us incredible dependence in how he depended on the Father. And he calls us to be needy, to, to reject the myth, the false idol of self-sufficiency, and to, to live in, in the reality of the gospel that, that he calls us to. And I think what can happen, looking at my own heart at least, is we as Christians, we can kind of take the lie of self-sufficiency in the world, you know, the pull me up by my own bootstraps, which is just so deeply embedded in our culture as, as Americans. And we, the, the lone ranger, the good upstanding citizen that doesn't bother anyone ever, and then we kind of baptize it with some, some scripture things. And when we do that, we kind of Christianize our American self-sufficiency. We, we're like a, a prince or a princess, a, a son or daughter of a king, all powerful, extravagantly wealthy, who just rejects it all and lives like an orphan in the slum, scrapping and stealing and lying and cheating and hustling to try to survive when the good, loving father is at the castle saying, come and just be with me, depend on me. I see it in my heart all the time, the, the lure of being competent, of having no needs, of scheme, financial scheming and hoarding to avoid vulnerability or the, the shame that springs up in my heart when I need to ask somebody for help or I drop a ball because I said yes to too many things. And God always calls us his children. He never says, grow up and be adults. Grow up to the point where you don't need me anymore. He never calls us to stop needing him. Instead, in the upside-down way of Jesus, what we see is that the mark of growth, the maturity of a healthy human is a more Deep, is to more deeply embrace our neediness. A deeper awareness of how we are like children and how much we need our Father. And taking this angle of neediness, of resisting self-sufficiency with this passage in Matthew 7 here, because we see that it's a common theme for really all of Jesus' teaching, but it also is how Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount series. If you flip to page 1501 in the Pew Bible, we'll, we'll see what Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with. Sermon on the Mount is three chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus is talking to his followers, people who said, yes, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I want to be your people. And he sits down with them on a mountain, and he says to them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first thing that Jesus says to his followers in this passage, in the Sermon on the Mount, this poor in spirit is not an option or something to consider, but it is an immovable, indisputable mark of a follower of Jesus. And we, when we preached on this last year, we talked about it as a spiritual bankruptcy, spiritual poverty, that we don't need a little spiritual loan or a little cash to float us to our next payday, but we're, we've defaulted on everything and we have no hope of paying anything back. This is our spiritual state. This is what Jesus says is, needs to be our reality, needs to be what we understand about ourselves if uh, we're going to be his followers. 
And the crazy thing is, Jesus looks at his followers and said, you're blessed, you're flourishing when you're living in the, out of the reality that you're spiritually bankrupt and in grace, God loves you. This is the upside down kingdom of Jesus. And if it sounds like a foreign language, because it kind of is to us as Americans, it's, it's categorically the opposite. It's not just that we like unconsciously are like, yes, I want to be self-sufficient. It's like a value. It feels like, I don't know if you're like me, but it feels like wrong to have needs or wrong to depend on other people. So as we look at this passage where Jesus calls us to ask, seek, and knock, and gives us this beautiful parable about what it looks like to receive from the Father, uh, just, let's just ask the Holy Spirit to, to show us where we've been infected by the culture, where we've been infected to value self-sufficiency in a way that's directly contrary with experiencing the good life with God. So we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at what does it look like to be needy, and then we're going to look at who we need, two qualities of God. Spoiler alert, the answer is God. That's who we need. We're going to look at two quali- qualities that he has that we see in this passage. So look in our sermon text that Natalie read for us, verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. I think it's very significant to place this passage in the context of the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus has said before this, right before he gets to this point where he tells us to ask, seek, and knock. Because it should make us feel super needy. It should make, it should make us see that we are completely helpless to do what Jesus calls us to do. So sandwiched between Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, ask, seek, and knock. What does he say? He has all these incredible, incredible passages that should just sound impossible to us if we're honest. Don't judge. Boom, we all, we all just struck out there on the first pitch. He says, don't look at problems in other people. Be aware of your own problems. How hard is it to honestly look at our own stuff? How hard is it to be at a place of, of grace where we know that how we're doing doesn't determine if we're okay or not, where we can say, I'm not doing good. I need to grow. He says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. We should all feel sweet, sweet dependency on God because we can't take the plank out of our own eye. And then right before that, what does he say? Don't be anxious. What? What? <laughs> Yeah, that, that, if we want to talk about another disease we get infected with in our culture, it's anxiety. He says, don't worry about your life. What, Jesus? How do we do this? And the answer is we can't. This is not meant to be possible on our own. So it's fitting, and we could, go, we could walk all the way through. I'm not going to re-preach the whole Sermon on the Mount again. But hopefully... We can see that these things are impossible to cultivate in our heart. To kill anxiety on your own is darn near impossible. So the first point, what does it look like to be needy, is to know what Jesus says. Know what Jesus says is the first step to being needy. 
Because we can make our own kind of religion, our own kind of spiritual okayness level, where if I'm at this point, if I get my quiet time in four times a week, or I didn't lose my temper, or I managed to go a month without looking at pornography, then I'm doing okay. But when we look at Jesus, we see that the bar is impossible to reach, and that we really are needy, that we actually need the Holy Spirit to cultivate fruit in our souls. The next thing that we see in what it looks like to be needy is to ask. Quite plainly, Jesus says it in the text, ask and it will be given to you. Jesus is saying, know what you need, vocalize it, and actually ask for it. Have you ever been around those people who will never ask for what they need and they get bitter when you don't give it to them? There's a, there's a, a level of discomfort with their own needs and their own self where they, they can't actually say it out loud. They want everybody to know it. But we have to ask, why would Jesus call us to ask? What does it cause us to believe in or to live out when we ask? It's that we are saved by grace, that having needs doesn't by any means diminish the love that God has for us. In Christ. It requires us to embrace our, our brokenness, our spiritual poverty. We have rhythms of asking God for what we need. God, I need peace. I'm so anxious now. God, I am furious. Search me and know me. This causes us, causes us to be humble. It causes us to live in the reality of grace that God loves us even when we are helpless. If you're following along your Bible, slip over to Psalm 139. Page 975. Praying scripture is a great way to start praying for everybody, especially if you're new to praying. And this is a prayer straight from scripture that we can read verbatim as much as it is helpful. Look what the psalmist says. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you want to know what to ask for, if you want to know what your needs are, because that is a hard thing to do. Again, some of us might not feel safe really coming to terms with what it is that we need. God can show us that too. If we are unable to ask God for stuff, he can give us, he can give us clarity there. And the part of this passage we just read I want you to see is when the psalmist says, test me and know my anxious thoughts. If you want to know what you need, what you need God to do for you and in you, look at your anxiety. Test me, test my anxious thoughts. Where do they flare up in? Because a lot of times we get anxious about things that seem very unspiritual. They're just not that big a deal. So we're all wrapped up in them, but we feel like we cannot bring them before God. But we can pray this prayer, test my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me. See if there's something wrong in me and then lead me into the way everlasting. This is a super simple prayer where we can see what we need God to do. The next way that we can know what to ask for is to pay attention to our suffering. You don't have to turn there, but let me flip over to James. James 1. you do want to turn there it's 1881 in the pew bible 
James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. So we pay attention to what our trials are. and we can, Why do we consider it joy, joy when we're suffering? Because we know that God is using it to draw us deeper in to dependency on him, to, into the reality that we need him. It's refining us. So instead of fighting whatever our trial is, warring against it, pushing against it, trying to cajole the circumstances so that we are no longer suffering, we could ask, what is God inviting me into? And we ask him. We ask him to deliver us in his way with the fruit he wants to make in our hearts. The second thing Jesus gives us when he talks about being needy is to seek. Ask, seek, knock. Seeking, I think we can understand it as setting up life to get whatever it is that we're asking about. The classic example of the farmer sitting on the couch asking God to grow his crops. Of course, the farmer can't make the crops grow, but he can put seeds in the ground, and he can water, and he can keep out pests. We ask for what we need from our Father, and then we set up our lives to get it. See this in Paul when he says in uh, Philippians 3, he says, not that I've already attained it, but that I press on towards the goal for the upward call in Christ. Paul just got done doing one of his ridiculous Paul statements where he's like, I count it all as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. He's super Christian. And then he gets done with that, and he says, but I haven't attained this yet. I press on, strain forward towards the goal. This is the beautiful combination of asking for God to do things that only he can do and then doing what we can to make ourselves available for it. So to do this seeking part and see what it actually looks like, I wanted to do a real simple example straight from Scripture right after Paul said that, dealing with anxiety again. Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and, and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So we, we, see, we have Paul combining anxiety and asking God, requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there is anything, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, there's a powerhouse of freedom from anxiety in these few verses. Because they're, they're not just random thoughts from Paul. He says, don't be anxious, but instead... With thanksgiving, prayer, and petition, make your request known to God. And then he says, seek it out by not thinking about all the terrible things all the time. He says, think about whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. So what does it look like to set up our lives so that we can seek after peace, so we can seek after freedom from anxiety by, by putting these things before us? And 
a suggestion I might make to you in love and something that also I can testify is very fruitful is to have a low information diet a low information diet mostly from our phones it's abundantly clear that social media and our phones make us anxious there's just no there's no doubt about that that none of the stats are, are confused about that that what the effect of having smartphones has and of course I have one and a lot of us have one and they're a part of life now I'm not saying get rid of it but I am saying what does it look like to to seek peace, seek freedom from anxiety to the point where it affects how we interact with our phone. And the suggestion I want to make is to not put your phone in your bedroom and to not look at it until you have read scripture in the morning. It's like, is this going to get us into heaven? No. Is it going to be a silver bullet to fix all our problems? No. But I think most of us struggle with anxiety to some level. And so what does it look like instead of comparing our lives to everybody on Facebook who's just doing it better and waking up feeling bad about ourselves or seeing what the latest tweet storm is or even just looking at the actual news, the real news, and seeing all the death and destruction and mayhem out there. But if instead we just started with a little scripture and asked God to calm our hearts for the day. This is just one example of what I think Jesus is getting at when he says, ask and then seek. If we're just going to ask for freedom from anxiety, ask for peace in our souls, and then just fill our minds with all the information, all the fearful, anxiety-producing information that we have all in our pockets right now, then there's a little dissonance there. Lastly, Jesus says to knock. We're looking at asking God for stuff. We're looking at the fruit of God in our life. It simply means, knocking simply means refuse to quit. Flip over to Luke 11. We'll let Jesus describe this to us. Page 1614, if you're following along in the, uh, the Pew Bible. Then he, Jesus, said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are in bed with me. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though you will not get up and give him anything, Give him the bread because he is his friend. Yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. This is the, the boldness of a child of God. If any of you have been around children, you know that they aren't too shy about asking for stuff and asking for things they want as well as need, I suppose. But Jesus says this, to ask, seek, and knock. Ask and seek and don't stop. <coughs> Waiting as we ask God for, for things in our hearts and our lives might be one of the ways that he answers that need. Waiting and trusting God to meet that need might be one of the ways that he answers that need. If nothing else, it can help us embody the truth that we have no other options. 
that we knock, we ask and we seek and we knock because there is no other place to go. There's no other place of safety, of comfort, of significance, of approval, other than a relationship with God our Father. So that's what it looks like to be needy. Let's talk about who we need. The first thing is we need a loving father we can trust. We need a loving father that we can trust. Look with me the next part of our sermon text. Jesus says, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus gives us a, a, a pretty compelling picture of a father that gives good gifts. And even the most wicked, twisted father typically wants good for their child. And these little mini parables that he gives us, he's, he talks about a son asking for, for bread instead getting a stone. It, you can't help but to think about the temptation of Christ where Jesus is in the wilderness and he's fasting and the devil shows up and says, hey, make these stones and turn them into bread. And what does Jesus respond? He says, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on the word of God. We see that the, the love of God is not simply just to meet our physical needs, but to give us himself, to give us his word. And then the fish thing, when you look at the, the historical context here, it was a big fishing industry uh, around this time, and there was a, apparently there was a type of fish that was kind of, it kind of looked like a fish, but it was kind of an eel, and you couldn't eat it. And so it was kind of like fool's gold, where you, it looked like it could appease your hunger, but it really couldn't. That's why it says snake. It was kind of like an like a eel or a snake. So it looks like it will, it will fix your hunger, but instead it just mocks us. This is not the way that fathers are. Even broken, unchristian, worldly fathers who are limited and grouchy and run out of money and all kinds of energy. This is the example he gives. And we see that we can trust a loving father because he delights to give us good things. Growing up, my dad modeled this character of God very well. There's several times where he would pick us up from something, take us home from church or something like that, and instead of like turning into the road to go home, he would just turn into the movie theater parking lot, and we would lose our minds. We would get so excited. He wouldn't say anything, just like stoic face, and just park and be like, let's go watch a movie. Just randomly on a school night, we, we couldn't even handle it. I, I feel weird saying that my dad is evil, but of course we know we're all, we're all sinners and stuff. And my dad, in all his blessings, is limited and not perfect, not the God of the universe. We could confidently say that. How much more will our Father in Heaven just pull into the movie theater parking lot and just give us good things? The second reason that we can trust the good Father in heaven, our loving Father in heaven, is because he knows us. Jesus has already touched on this once in, verse, or in chapter 6, where he says, 
He's talking about people who would just babble on and on and on and on and on, praying to kind of for the show. And he says, don't be like those people. Your father knows what you need before you ask. Have you ever talked to, to parents who really are dialed in to their kids? They have multiple kids, and they're really dialed in to what's going on in the hearts of their kids. And it's a blessing. I've, I've talked to parents who are like this. I only have one, and he's pretty young. But I've talked to parents who talk about how differently their kids respond to different circumstances, the way, the dramatically different ways that they would discipline one kid and, and how different it would be from the other kid. We can trust that God knows us. He knows the hairs on our head. He knows when we sit down and when we stand up, when we go out and when we come back. Before we say a word, he knows what it is. Psalm 139 says that he formed every day that we live before we lived any of them. So we can trust God because he knows us. Trust is the key. And I've touched on this several times. I just want to hit it again and again and again and again. How we relate is how we relate. And so the status of our relationship with our earthly fathers for sure is going to help or hinder our relationship with our heavenly father. What we need in order to embrace this, the dependency of, the, of a follower of Jesus is trust in our heavenly father. And the degree to which we were able to trust our earthly fathers can help that, and the degree to which we could not trust our earthly fathers is going to hurt that. And we need to be reparented in the gospel by the power of the spirit. This could probably fall into the category of the plank in our eyes, where we have ways of being, ways of relating to father figures that we don't even know, we don't even see, because they're just the, the air we breathe growing up. But we all have daddy issues. All of us dads are going to give our kids daddy issues, which is why we all need grace. We all need the Holy Spirit to reparent us in the gospel. So the question is, how is your trust game? To what degree do you trust a good, loving father who knows you, who delights to give you good things? The second person, the second aspect of God that we need is a father who always gives good gifts. We need a father who always gives good gifts. That might seem kind of quaint, nice church phrase. But I think when it gets into the nitty-gritty of our life, there can be some debate about what actually is good. If you're older than four, you've probably experienced some suffering, some hard things in life. How does that fit into a loving father who knows us, delights to give us good things, and always gives us good things? Well, I think it comes down to a question of who decides what is good. Because it's not us. Proverbs 14.12, feel like God in his bittersweet mercy brings this verse to mind several times a week. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. <laughs> it might sound good, but in the end, everybody dies. Part of my story, this is a few years after the debt collecting experience, I was a uh, felt called to be a pastor, and I was, partic I was a member of a church plant, and I wanted to go on staff at this church plant and be trained, and they said, yeah, we love that. Just go raise your salary. <laughs> so I went and started to try to raise my salary, because we were a small church plant, couldn't hire a staff person or anything like that, and 
uh, at that time, the lottery got up to like 300 and something, almost $400 million. And uh, I lived in kind of a sketchy part of town where lottery was everywhere. And I was like, man, that would probably cover my salary to work at the church and do God's work. And I wanted to plant a church at the time. And I was thinking, a church plant from start to self-sufficient probably uh, costs about a quarter million dollars. I'm like, that is a lot of church plants. So not only would it help me get some training, but I could also plant like a thousand churches. So I bought bought a lottery ticket. And I didn't win, believe it or not. And I remember waking up in the morning and checking the numbers and being like, do you not want a thousand churches, God? What is happening here? And honestly, I pouted about it for a little while. I went to work, and I was like, what in the world? I didn't think I was going to have to go to work. It's all this stuff I didn't, if you would have asked me before I read the numbers, I was like, well, no, I know I'm not going to win yet. Like, I know it's dumb. But how my heart responded revealed otherwise. And I was on my break. At this point, I had this rhythm where on my smoke break, I would uh, memorize scripture, and uh, I was Philippians. And it was almost like an audible voice said, what if I want you to depend on me instead of the lottery? Would you rather win the lottery and not need me or join ministry with me and need me every second of the day? There's a way that seems right to men, and in the end, we all die. And that's obviously a hilarious example but it's also very clear how we can kind of baptize worldly things. If I just got money, then I could do a lot of stuff for God. Then I wouldn't need him. Another example of this where is that in that same church, it didn't end well. I joined staff. I was, woo, everything all the time, working real hard for this church. And uh, I ended, they ended up saying, telling me not to come back. They couldn't fire me because they weren't paying me. But they said, stop doing what you're doing. It was devastating. <clears throat> My first like, gig in ministry and all that stuff, and I fell into such a pit of darkness. I like, had thoughts of like, this whole Christian thing is not worth doing. Everything has been a fraud. It felt like the curtain had kind of been pulled back, and I realized that everybody had been laughing at me, and nobody liked me, and I was worthless. And I just remember laying on the floor of my room just asking why, like, what is happening? And it was a similar situation where it was almost like a voice said, if I love you and everybody else hates you, is that enough? And the answer then was no, is that I needed all these other people's opinion to prop me up, that the the love of my heavenly father was, was minimal in my heart. And again, it was in the context of ministry. I had all this ministry going on, all these relationships that I thought were doing the Lord's work, and instead I was using the Lord's work to not need the Lord. Now, not winning the lottery, that's not really suffering, but having these, this broken church relationship was, was pretty darn tough. It, it, and I see the goodness of God in it. I see what he was saving me from. If 24-year-old Josh had got a job at a church and then skyrocketed to wherever you skyrocket to in church ministry, it would have been terrible to leave me in that place of being enslaved to what people thought about me. 
Psalm 27 is this beautiful, beautiful passage. We're not going to read the whole thing. But it shows what the gospel does to our fearful what-ifs. It shows how the gospel transforms the what-ifs that take up residence in, in all of our thoughts all the time. You flip to Psalm 27. I'm just going to read part of it. Look in verse 3. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his, seek him in his temple. In the gospel, the question, what if? And we all have a lot of them. And listen, they're legitimate. What if I get hit by a car? What if I get sick? What if my spouse dies? What if I lose my child? We, there are many what ifs that legitimately could happen. But what Psalm 27 says, though an army besiege me, though war breaks out against me, one thing I ask, the one thing I seek is to be with God, to dwell in the house of the Lord. It changes the what if to an even if. Even if everyone turns against me, the one thing that I want, the one thing that will satisfy me is to experience the presence of my Father, to be with my God in heaven. In many ways, this is expounding on pay attention to your suffering because God is in it and he's calling you out of brokenness. He's calling into a deeper place of trust in his fatherhood. When the psalmist says, he who fears the Lord lacks no good thing, and we are in a place of incredible lack and sadness and feeling the gap in all of our, all of our life, we lack no good thing because in Christ we have God. How can we know for sure that he gives good gifts? This is the last passage, Romans eight thirty-two. Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We know that God is not withholding because he loved us literally to death. Part of the gospel is that in Christ we can live life with God, and that life with God is all based on the fact that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was nailed to a cross for my sin and for your sin, and that he didn't stay dead. He rose to new life, calling us to new life with God. Through the lens of the cross, when it feel, we feel that lack, even though we can see God saying that those who fear the Lord lack no, lack no good thing, we put on the lens of the cross that he who didn't spare his own son, he loved us so much that he was willing to die for us. He loved us so much that he would... The, price of adoption, to bring us into his family as his children, was the death of Jesus. 
There's a song we sing here called Abide With Me. And the last verse says, Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life and death, Lord, abide with me. And I love this verse because it, it combines holding the cross before our eyes, the, the fact of God's love in a broken and crucified Jesus. And then it brings it into our real life and abiding with us and in in shine through the gloom and the vain shadows of the earth and brings us into the pre- presence of Christ. Your two applications for this week is one, to get an alarm clock, keep your phone out. Don't look at it until you read some scripture. Two, consider, consider how your earthly father affected the way you relate to God. Ask God to search you and know you in that place and reparent you in the gospel. Those are your two applications. And we do these simple things, not because they're going to fix everything, but because I think it's just so beautiful, so fun to imagine what we would be like as a church family if we, if we trusted, trusted our Father, if we cast off the infection of self-sufficiency and we lived like beloved, dependent children, boldly, asking God for stuff and setting up our lives to experience it and waiting for him to to do it. What would that look like in our relationships in the church? What would that look like in our marriages if we trusted God and we could trust God with the spouse that he gave us? What would it look like when we feel like we have no other options and money is too tight? What would that look like for our sleeping patterns? To me, the question what would this look like if I trusted God has been transformative because it just takes all the pressure off of me getting there now on my own. It just lets me imagine what life could be like as, as I step in deeper to the experience of the gospel. What would it look like if I trusted my Father in heaven? Let me pray.